Everyone else, go ahead and take your Bibles, and you guessed it, open to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, we're going to continue to make our way this morning through the book of Daniel, and this morning we're going to look at one of the most famous stories in probably all the Bible, Daniel and the lion's den. And much like when we looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, this is probably a familiar story. This one is probably more familiar even than Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego, but it's a story that we have seen time and time again. It's one of those sort of famous vacation Bible school stories, if you will, that you hear from the time that you're a child. And if we're not careful, we will look at these passages as adults and we will sort of miss the picture as to what God is actually doing in these texts. And so here, what we're going to see is not the awesomeness and the greatness of Daniel, but in this story, we are going to see the glory and the sovereignty of God on display. As a matter of fact, in the text, we're going to see five ways in which we see the sovereignty and the glory of God. So we're going to read, starting in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to read the first five verses as we've kind of been doing. We're going to set the stage and then we'll make our way through the rest of this chapter as we uh, as we make our way through the text as a whole. And so if you will, just join with me. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Will you pray with me? Lord, again, we thank you for just allowing us to be together this morning and to go through your word together. Lord, we know that there are many around the world that do not have this freedom. And so, Lord, we are just thankful for it this morning. As we prepare for Thanksgiving this week, Lord, this morning we come before you thankful for the opportunities that we have to come together as a church family, to come together and study your word. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity. And I pray pray that you would use it for your glory in our hearts and in our lives, that you would speak to us this morning through this text, and that your will would be done in us and through us today. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, in the text this morning, we're going to see five ways in which we see the sovereignty and the glory of God. Number one, God uses our godly character to display his sovereignty and glory. Let me say that again. God uses our godly character to display his sovereignty and his glory. Now, this is quick or short or early in the rule of Darius the Mede. Just to give you a little historical Uh, kind of commentation here. 
Darius the Mede is likely the same person, just a different name for Cyrus the Great or Cyrus the Persian. As a matter of fact, we see at the end of this chapter that Darius the Mede and Cyrus are mentioned in the same verse. And both Darius and Cyrus are actually titles, not names. And so most likely because he was ruling over two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, he has two titles by which he goes by depending on his audience. And so this is early on in the rule of Darius the Mede, but just like Darius, uh, just like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar before him, it does not take Darius long to realize that Daniel is a special man that has been anointed and blessed by his God. And so Darius sets up his government. He begins with just 120 satraps or administrators that are going to help govern the land of Babylon and possibly even the entire Medo-Persian empire. Over those 120 satraps, he sets up three high officials that are going to sort of be his go-to men that are going to govern those men and therefore govern the entire kingdom that he oversees. And what he finds out is that Daniel, one of those three high officials, is a distinguished man, a man full of wisdom and understanding who has a special spirit upon him. And we know that Daniel actually has not just a special spirit, but he has the spirit of his God upon him, right? And so this is not just a guy that happens to be wise. This is not just a guy that happens to be well-rounded. This isn't a man that has just the experience of his 80 years of life. This is a man that has been equipped and anointed and is being used by God. That's what makes Daniel special. Don't get me wrong. Daniel is an awesome guy who loves the Lord and has followed him faithfully. But it is God that is working in and through Daniel in his life. Amen? So from the very beginning, as we started this book, back in chapter 1, it was God that kept doing extraordinary things through Daniel and his companions. Yes, they were devoted to their God. They served their God. But we don't want to give them credit. We want to give their God the credit. Amen? Just like when God does something awesome and amazing in our lives, we were there for it, but it was God that did it. Amen? If we want to take credit, we can take credit for all the other times when we got in God's way and messed it up. Amen? <laughs> that's, that's what we do at our best. But God here is working through Daniel in an amazing way. And so we see that as Darius sets up this kingdom, it is quick to his attention that Daniel is a man that he needs to use and he needs to use him possibly even as his own right-hand man. And so he decides that he's going to make Daniel above all the other high officials and over all the administrators over the land, Daniel, just like he did for Nebuchadnezzar, is basically going to run the kingdom for Darius. And as you can imagine, the other high officials and the other satraps become jealous and they decide that they're going to do whatever they can to keep Daniel from being able to rank at such a high capacity in the government. Think about it from their standpoint. Daniel is a foreigner. He's in exile. He's one that was just captured uh, probably six months to a year before these events. Right? He wasn't somebody. He wasn't special. He wasn't a Mede. He wasn't a Persian. He was in exile from Judah. Right? But now all of a sudden the king is going to make him his right hand man? 
Of course the others in the kingdom would have been jealous. Of course they would have been angry. None of them wanted to see this happen. And so they decide that they're going to find some fault in Daniel that will prohibit him from ranking so high in the government. And so they begin to look, they begin to search. They try to find anyone who might have a complaint against Daniel. They analyze his character. They analyze his past. They look into how he handles money, how he handles decisions, what he does and how he does it. They look and they look and they look and they ultimately discover that they can find no complaint. They can find no fault. They can find no error. Here's what they find. They find that he was faithful and that he was committed. He was faithful and he was committed. And so basically they come to the conclusion, we cannot find anything that is going to disqualify Daniel in his life. If there's one thing Daniel has going against him that we might can use, it's that he is a faithful follower of his God. Wow, that's an awesome testimony, amen? Can't find a thing wrong against him, but if we can get him... To have to choose somehow between his God and the kingdom, that's where we're going to get Daniel. Now this paints an incredible picture of Daniel, no doubt. Notice that Daniel here is not a private follower of God, but he is a public worshiper of the God of Israel. Daniel surrounding himself with those who worship many, many, many different fake and false gods stands proudly as one who serves the one true God, the God of Israel, and he makes that his public worship and public profession. No one is curious about who Daniel worships. No one's wondering, is Daniel a man that loves and serves his God? It is so clear that these men decide if we're going to get him, we're going to get him in his service to his God. And so the one who follows the God of Israel, the foreigner, the exile from Judah was being used in a mighty way to display God's sovereignty and glory in a pagan land. And what I want us to understand as we sort of begin this text is that God wants to use us in the same way. God wants to use our godly character to display His sovereignty and His glory in the land. Now let me say again, that doesn't mean that we need to do better or try harder so that we can be like Daniel. Instead, what it means is that we need to allow God to use us because it was God that was working in and through Daniel. It wasn't Daniel being a great guy. You understand how that works? And I know that might seem like a foreign concept because we have simply tried our entire life to be better and do better. And that's why we feel so much guilt. That's why we feel so much frustration is because every time we try to be better, every time we try to, every time we try to do better, every time I try to speak the English language, right? We mess it up, right? We, we don't do it. We, we don't do better because we're not good. We can't be better because we're not good. We're, we're not those things. When we, when we do better, when we try to be better, when we try to do things based upon our own strength and understanding and abilities, we mess it up. So what do we do? Well, we do what Daniel does in his life that he's been demonstrating all around. We just submit ourselves fully unto the Lord. When Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, I don't want to eat the diet of the king because it'll defile me. What did Daniel do? He submitted himself to his God. 
And he said, God, I'll eat vegetables and drink water just so I can maintain my purity. And therefore, God, it's up to you to do this. Right? And God blessed that. And God caused him to grow in strength and in wisdom along with his companions. Not because a vegetable diet gives you more muscle mass than a high-protein diet. We know that's not true, right? But because God was faithful to Daniel because Daniel surrendered himself to his God. And listen, if God is going to use our godly character to display his sovereignty and glory, it's going to be because we are surrendering ourselves more and more and more to God. We're trusting God more and more and more in our lives. Amen? And so notice as we begin this text that God uses our godly character to display his sovereignty and glory. And then secondly, God uses an antagonistic culture to display his sovereignty and glory. Look with me now, beginning in verse 6. It says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce it in injunction. That whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. In other words, no one's allowed to pray for 30 days to anyone except to you, O king. Now, O king, verse 8, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So what happens? Well, these governors and these satraps, they decide that they are going to come against the kingdom and that, excuse me, they're going to come against Daniel and they're going to come against God's anointed. Now, let me be clear. There is an evil in this world that has set itself in opposition to God and his people. We see in Genesis 3.15 where God declared that his that, excuse me, that there would always be enmity between Satan and the followers of God. So it should not surprise us when the world is against us and we have to suffer in order to follow our God. Let me say that again. It should not surprise us when we have to suffer and when the world comes against us when we set out to follow our God. Right? It shouldn't surprise us. Instead, notice that it's not an unusual thing. It's something that we should plan for. It's something that we should even expect. Peter tells us this. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Peter says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Listen to that again. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, that is exactly what Daniel does. Daniel isn't surprised. He's prepared, right? This isn't his first rodeo. This is an 80-year-old who's been around the block. He knows that the culture is going to be against his God. He knows the battle, the trial, the difficulty is going to come, right? I remember as a, as a young man growing up in my home church, our pastor would say often, the storm is coming. The phone is going to ring. 
You're either going to be in the midst of the storm, you're going to be coming out of the storm, or whether you like it or not, you're about to head into the storm, right? This is life. This is what happens. And what we oftentimes see is the difficulties arise out of the culture that is against us and against our God. And that is exactly what Daniel experiences here. And so we see in verse 6 that after realizing that they could not find any fault against Daniel, they decide to come up with a plan that they are sure is going to work. And here's their plan. We'll go to the king, we'll flatter him, we'll butter him up, he's new on the job, and we'll get this king to make a decree that no one is allowed to pray to any other god or any other man except for him for a solid month. Now, why Darius agrees to this, we don't know. Maybe Darius decided, you know what, this is a good idea. Maybe this will unite the kingdom under me. Maybe this will test the loyalty of my subjects and my other administrators to make sure that they are all uh, subject and loyal to me. And so Darius signs a decree, and according to the Medo-Persian law, a decree signed by the king could not be changed or disobeyed even by the king. Matter of fact, we see this as historically true. When the Medes or the Persians signed something into law, no one could disobey it or change it, not even the king. And so they make sure they state that up front. Darius signed this petition for 30 days. We're going to make you God. Everybody will pray to you. Hurry up and sign it. Don't forget to sign it. Don't forget to sign it on the back as well, right? So we want to make sure that you are aware this thing cannot be changed. And here's what they do. They give Daniel a choice. Daniel, you're either going to serve your God and die, or you're going to serve the king and live. And here's what I find so fascinating about this. They already knew what Daniel was going to do. This was their foolproof plan to kill Daniel. They never doubted for a moment that Daniel would stop worshiping his God in order to bow down to the king. They knew because of Daniel's godly character that he would not stop serving his God for any reason, even if it cost him his life. I hope that will be said of me one day. Right? I hope that is said of you one day. That's incredible. Amen? And so what does Daniel do? Daniel continues to follow God. Daniel had a godly character and he was not going to let life or death stop him from serving his God. Now the question is, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow such a rule, such a law, such a decree to be made? Why would God put Daniel and his companions in chapter 3, why would God allow these things to happen? Why would he put them in this situation? Because God is going to use this antagonistic culture to display his sovereignty and his glory. As a matter of fact, we'll actually see this happen again on the cross. We will see the enemy come against God's anointed and lead a culture against him so that God's own son will die at the hands of sinners only so that three days later God can display his sovereignty and glory by raising Jesus from the dead and securing our eternal life and salvation. You see what God is doing through the story of Daniel is God is preparing us for and pointing us to what he's going to do through Jesus. Because we will see time and time again throughout the history of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it is oftentimes God's will that a culture come against him or his anointed so that he can prove himself faithful, sovereign, and glorious. 
We see His glory displayed over Egypt. Right? We see His glory displayed over all those inhabitants of the promised land. We see His glory on display over and over and over again so that when we see a culture, when we see a country, when we see antagonists come against our God, it should not scare us or frighten us. It should excite us because we're about to see God's glory on display. Amen? So let me encourage you to keep that in mind when our culture continues to prove itself antagonistic against our God. Amen? Should not frighten us. Should not terrify us. It should excite us because we're about to see God's sovereignty and God's glory on display. Amen? And that's exactly what we're going to see in just a moment. So God uses our godly character to display his sovereignty and glory. God uses an antagonistic culture to display his sovereignty and glory. And then thirdly, God uses our unwavering devotion to display his sovereignty and glory. Now it is important to understand that Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he does not make the decision to follow God in the heat of the battle. He makes the decision to follow God and be faithful to God long before this temptation and this trial comes his way. And I want you to understand that if we're going to stand faithful to our God, it will not be a decision we make in the midst of the temptation. It will be a decision we make right now. Amen? We have to decide now that our God is worth everything. We have to decide now that our God is worth all things, including our life. We have to decide that we trust God more than we trust ourselves and that we will gladly place our lives and our livelihoods in the hands of our God. Amen? And Daniel has already made the decision. So when the time comes after the decree has been signed, it is no wonder or question as to what Daniel is going to do. Look with me in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you've signed, but makes his petitions three times a day. The king, when he heard this, When he heard these words, excuse me, he was much distressed and he set his mind to deliver Daniel and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, King, excuse me, know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. In verse 16, the king commanded that Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, 
and he spent the night fasting. No diversions or entertainment or luxuries, in other words, were brought to him, and he slept, fled from him. So not to our surprise, his enemies know what he's going to do. Darius knows what he's going to do. We know what he's going to do. Daniel does what we're all expecting. Daniel continues to serve his God. And he doesn't do what we might do. He doesn't say, okay, I'll pray. Doesn't Scripture say we're supposed to pray in our prayer closet? That sounds like a great idea now. I'm going to get in my prayer closet. I'm going to hide my faith from my culture. That way I don't have to endure the persecution. No. Daniel goes to the top floor of his house. He opens the window. He stands before Jerusalem, gets down on his knees, and he prays just like his enemies knew he would do. His enemies aren't wondering if he's going to do it. They're out front of his house watching for the window to open at the exact time that he always prayed. And they're there to say, whoo, there he is. We got him. And of course they go to the king. They say, oh king, didn't you sign this decree? Didn't you say this? Well, guess what? Daniel, the exile from Judah that you love and that you were going to put over the entire kingdom, by the way, that we don't like, he's praying. He's praying to his God three times a day because he doesn't respect you and doesn't care about you. Now, at this point, Darius notices notice that Darius realizes he's been tricked because Darius is not angry at Daniel. Darius is saddened by the news and tries to figure out all day long how to stop, how to fix the problem, right? He labors, he's working, he's trying to figure it out. But according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, he cannot disobey his own order. And so finally, at the end of the day, before the sun goes down, these governors show back up and they say, King Darius, we're all in agreement. You're going to get yourself in trouble if you don't obey your own command. Daniel has to be thrown in the lion's den. And so, sure enough, the king issues a decree. Daniel's brought forth. And before Daniel gets thrown in, Darius leans over. I like to imagine that Darius leans over and whispers in Daniel's ear. May the God whom you serve continuously save you. What I think is interesting here is that Daniel does not have, excuse me, Darius does not have faith in God But it appears as if Darius has faith in Daniel's faith in his God, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Darius doesn't doesn't worship the one true God of Israel. He doesn't acknowledge the one true God of Israel yet. He doesn't have faith in Daniel's God. But Darius has seen Daniel's life. He's seen his character. He's noticed Daniel walk with his Lord. And it's as if Darius is saying to Daniel, I don't know your God but I know you well enough to know that your God must be real. And so I'm rooting for you. And then he lowers him into the pit. And then he, uh, notice verse 17, the imagery here. He puts a large stone over the hole that leads to the den and he puts his signet ring on the stone. Does that remind you of any other occurrence or anything else you've read in Scripture? Man, what a beautiful foreshadow of what's going to happen to God's own son. Because it will be Jesus that will be placed in a cave, in a tomb, with a large stone rolled over the face with Pilate's signet ring placed in the middle of it so that no one can mess with or move the stone. And what is so amazing here is that God is about to display his glory through the unwavering devotion of Daniel. Because just like when they go to remove the stone from the den and when they go to remove the stone from the tomb, there is going to be massive disappointment for those who are rooting for death and there's going to be great sovereignty and great glory given to the God who saves Daniel and Jesus. Amen? 
And that's exactly what we see. And so God uses our godly character to display his sovereignty and glory. God uses an antagonistic culture to display his sovereignty and glory. God uses an unwavering devotion to display his sovereignty and glory. And then God, fourthly, uses his creation to display his sovereignty and glory. Notice what takes place as we continue on in verse 19. Then at daybreak. By the way, the similarities between this and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are incredible. I can't point them all out, but just notice them as we go. Then at daybreak, just like Mary and Martha run to the tomb... The king arose and he went in haste. He ran to the den to see if Daniel was alive. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now this is a sobering part of the story, but what happens is Darius goes to the den, he removes the stone, and he calls out with anguish because he's assuming that Daniel is dead. Daniel was your God whom you serve continuously, able to save you from the mouths of the lions. It's as if Darius is asking this question. Daniel, was your God able? Was your God sovereign? Was he strong enough? Was he capable of doing this impossible task? You see, Darius was under the impression that the lions worked for him. Darius was under the impression that the lions would immediately do what lions do. They would fall prey to their animalistic instincts and they would eat and devour Daniel. But what Darius is about to learn is that the lions are under the control of God. The God that created them. The God who is sovereign over all things including his creation. Amen? And so God sends an angel, shuts the mouths of the lion. As far as we know, Daniel had one of the most interesting nights of sleep that anyone has ever had, right? You got Jonah in the belly of the well, Daniel in the lion's den, all pretty amazing things to think about, right? I know my, my daughter loves cats. Haley would probably love the idea of cuddling up with a bunch of lions and snuggling with them all night long if he, she knew they weren't going to eat her, Right? I mean, it'd been warm, would have been fuzzy, would have been comfy. I mean, it would have been an incredible night for Daniel to just sit there and relax and hang out amongst the lions. And that is exactly what Daniel does. God is sovereign over creation and God uses his creation to display his sovereignty and to display his glory. And so God spares the life of Daniel. But don't miss the truth that is on display here. God is a gracious and a merciful God offering salvation and deliverance to all who will follow him. However, judgment and death will come to those who refuse and who reject him. Darius issues the command, bring Daniel up. And all of those who had tricked Darius and all of those who had came after Daniel are thrown in with their families. 
which was typical in the Mede and Persian empires, that when a man was judged, he was judged along with his entire family. It's a sobering, even difficult passage to understand and to comprehend, but here is the biblical truth. God loves you. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. God is offering all of us salvation and deliverance. He's offering us grace and mercy. However, if we reject God, if we reject his son, then judgment is going to come. And it will not be a slap on the wrist. It will be eternal death and separation from God. Amen? And so we need to understand that. We need to acknowledge that so that we can make the decision that we are going to follow God. And if we are not, then there needs to be no surprises about what is to come. And so we see that God uses our godly character to display his sovereignty and glory. He uses the antagonistic culture. He uses our unwavering devotion. He uses his creation. And then fifthly and finally, God uses our faithfulness to display his sovereignty and glory to the nations. Look with me now at the end of chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he, God, is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So what happens here at the end of verse or chapter 6 and verses 25 through 28 is we begin to see again God's heart and desires for the nations. I hope that you have paid attention and caught on and noticed that refrain that we have seen in almost every chapter so far that a decree goes out to the peoples, the nations, and the languages. All throughout Daniel, we see God has a heart and a desire to see the nations bring him glory. Not just Israel, not just Babylon, not just the Medes, not just the Persians. God has a desire for the nations. Amen? All the peoples, all the nations, and all the languages. God wants the peoples, the nations, and the languages to bring him glory. As a matter of fact, we see this all throughout Scripture. It was in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God called Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. And here's what God said to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families or all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus then comes onto the scene declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand for all who will repent and believe and follow him, Jews and Gentiles alike. 
like. God sent His Son to die on the cross so that the nations could come to God in glory. And then as Jesus was exiting the scene in Matthew 28, He commissions His disciples and the church to make the gospel known to the nations. Matthew 28, 18-20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what I want to make sure that we understand is that the end of the age has not come. And therefore the commission is still the same. God is sending us to the nations to make His glory known to the nations. Amen? And don't misunderstand what we've been looking at and focusing at on Wednesday nights. The nations start right where you are at. The nations start with that lost person that you know that is standing in front of you. Right? Your neighbor, your coworker, your brother, your sister, your, your nation start right there. And so you start where you are, declaring God's glory, leading people to Jesus by telling them the truth of the gospel. But we do that with an eye towards the nations. Knowing that we must not just stay here, we must always have the mindset that we need to go and declare His glory to the nations. Because there are still many, 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 many nations and peoples who have yet to hear the truth of the gospel. I know that is almost impossible for us to comprehend that there are people and places on the earth today that do not know Jesus. But I'm telling you, there are people and places on the earth today that do not know Jesus. Still over 3,000 people groups do not know the name of Jesus yet. It's crazy, amen? And what we have to understand, what we have to see in the text is that God has a desire for the peoples, the nations, and the languages. And what is God's desire? God's desire is that they would declare His glorious just like Darius does. Notice what Darius says in verses 26 and following. Darius declares that he, God, is the living God. In other words, he's not fake faults. He's not made with human hands. He has legitimate and real power. Amen? Darius just got to see God's power on display. And he makes a decree, Daniel's God is the real God. Daniel's God is the God that actually has power. He is the one that is the living God. Notice he says that he endures forever. In other words, he is eternal. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. He will be an everlasting kingdom that we know is established through and in his son. He, God, will reign forever. And we know in the New Testament that Christ will reign seated at the right hand of God forever. He is a God that saves and he is a God that delivers. Notice in verse 27, he works signs and wonders in heaven and and on earth. Why? So that he can reveal his glory to people. Think about that for a minute. God knows how awesome he is. Amen? He doesn't need to display signs and wonders to prove to himself that he's great. He displays signs and wonders on earth and in heaven so that we will know he's awesome. So that we can acknowledge him. So that we can worship him. So that we can have a relationship with him. Amen? And so he, he delivers, he rescues in heaven and on earth. He works signs and wonders. He is the one who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Here's what I want you to know. God has a desire to save the nations, yes, but God also has a desire to save you individually. 
Notice that God wasn't just looking out over the nations while Daniel was being eaten by lions. God is also a personal God. God has a desire to have a relationship with you. So God wasn't off somewhere more important. God was with Daniel in the lion's den. God was watching over, protecting. God was using Daniel to display his glory to the nations. One man being used to display his glory to the nations of the earth at the time. It's incredible, amen? Because God doesn't just deliver and establish kingdoms and nations. God works in people, individual people's lives. And you know how I know? Because he's worked in mine. He saved me from my sin, right? He has a plan for my life that I'm desperately trying to follow, right? He's, he's speaking to me. He's using me. He's working in me. He's convicting and discipling and disciplining me. Amen? Because God is a God that loves us individually. And God is a God that desires a relationship with each and every one of us. Because God has a desire that we would bring Him glory. And so what we see in this text is that God is the God who sovereignly reigns over all the earth and over all that we know and don't know. What we see in this text is that God alone deserves our glory and our praise and our commitment. And so the question becomes, are we making God's glory known to the nations? Are we allowing God's glory to be on display in our lives? Have we come to the place where we have that personal and individual relationship with the living God? Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, the first thing I want to ask is, Do you have that relationship, that individual, personal relationship with God? Whereby you believe and you trust that God sent his own son Jesus to die on a cross. That through his death, our sins might be paid for. So that when we would believe in who Jesus is and when we would commit ourselves to following Christ in our lives that we could be a part of God's family, that he would be our God, he would be our savior. Have you ever come to the place in your personal life where you have trusted your life to Jesus, where you've asked him for forgiveness, where you've surrendered your life to him? If you have, then praise the Lord for it right now. Just thank him for your salvation. But if you have not, let me tell you that God loves you you. He loves you individually. You are wonderfully and preciously made in his image. He has a desire and a plan for you. And it all starts with him calling you unto salvation and giving you by his grace the ability to say yes to him and surrender your life to him. And for some, he may be doing that right now. You may be in this building, you may be listening online, but if you feel God speaking to your heart about your salvation, if you hear him calling unto you, then let me encourage you, say yes to him. 
He loves you and he has a plan for your life that will enable you to bring him glory. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and sing our hymn of invitation. If you're in the building, then come and just tell me, Will, I want to, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to follow Jesus and I'll tell you everything that you need to know so that you can give your heart and life to Christ. If you're watching online, then reach out to us via messenger, uh, text, call, however you can, but reach out so that we can tell you more about how you can give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Secondly, believers, let me ask you, are you displaying God's glory through your godly character and unwavering devotion? And I know when I ask that, it makes you have this desire, oh man, I got to do better I got I to gotta be better. No, no, you don't. Surrender more of your life to him. Allow God to be God over all of you and all that you have. And then you will begin to see God displaying his glory through your character and through your unwavering devotion because it will depend on him and not you. Are you noticing and trusting God's sovereignty around us? even in the midst of our antagonistic culture? Believers, let me encourage you, trust God's sovereignty and look forward to him displaying his glory in the midst of an antagonistic culture. And then finally, are you willing to go wherever God calls you, whether it's across the street or to the nations? Are you willing to be used by God to declare his glory to the nations? and to the lost all around us. Lord, we love you, and we thank you again for the opportunity that we've had to hear your word, and we thank you now for the opportunity that we have to respond. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and honored now as we respond to your word, that however you're moving, however you're leading, that we would follow you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you're gonna do. We love you, and we praise you. It's in your holy name that we pray, amen.